All of the newest episodes of Note to Self are now available on the Luminary Podcast app. It's free to download, and you can also listen to other podcasts from WNYC Studios, like Radiolab, Two Dope Queens, Snap Judgment, Here's the Thing with Alec Baldwin, and others. Luminary Premium is the only place where you can enjoy the entire new season of Note to Self, plus new original podcasts you won't find anywhere else, from Trevor Noah, Roxanne Gay, Guy Raz, Lena Dunham, and many more. And you can enjoy them ad-free. Start your free trial by going to luminary.link slash note to self or download the Luminary app for free. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Waking up to the world as it is is not the same thing as turning into a conspiracy theorist. I think that's really different from peeling back and saying, okay, what did Russia really do in the 2016 election? What's it doing around the world? How should we respond to this whole tech-Russia-fake-news election unfolding story? Such good questions. I'm Anoush Zamarodi, your guide to this accelerating world, and I'm here to help you stay focused on what really matters to you. And note to self, if talking about democracy getting hacked feels like old news, it's time to take a fresh look. And that's what this episode is all about, putting together all the pieces to figure out how we got to this point, where Twitter, Google, Facebook are all testifying on Capitol Hill. And you might be wondering if posts in your feed were written by some guy in St. Petersburg on the Russian government's payroll. And of course, with the midterm elections right around the corner and investigations ongoing, we also need to look at what to prepare for in the year ahead. And we're going to do that with two obsessive journalists who have been doing their own investigating, breaking news on these topics practically every day. But we're going to start by stringing together some of the key discussions that we've had on the show over the past year. Because when you put them together and you add a little sprinkle of 2020 hindsight, boom, some of the points these people have made have proved pivotal. Is Zuck responsible? Radicalized. Digital footprints. Data science. Misinformation. What's normal? It was almost exactly a year ago that a new U.S. president was elected. But by whom? I mean, obviously, there's one answer. It's by the American voters. We cast the ballots, they were counted, and here we are. But there's another answer, too. Because it's clear now that Russia had a virtual hand in this presidential election not by hacking voting machines or tampering with ballots, but with false headlines, fake profiles, exploiting the very way social media works to mess with how we Americans talk to each other and what we talk about. Even before the election, we had heard sort of rumblings that people within Facebook had been worried about or been talking about the role that it played in the campaign and in election news. Right after Donald Trump was declared president, the New York Times' tech columnist Farhad Manju came on the show and reminded us that how voters got their information in the run-up to casting their ballots last year was completely different. But Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg said it was, quote, a pretty crazy idea that his platform played a role in actually deciding the election. Is Zuck responsible? for what we see in the creation of fake news and our social media bubbles. This is former Facebook employee Antonio Garcia Martinez. 
A couple months after the election, we had him on the podcast, explaining how he helped invent the very ad-targeting systems that could be used to make sure that certain people saw certain political ads and false stories. But Antonio also explained why he now felt that it was time for his former boss to stop shying away from the hard questions. Is he now the sheriff of our online towns? They're not all going to be nice little knitting groups in Portland, right? Some of them are going to be very violent hate groups. And, you know, what responsibility does Facebook have for shutting that down? I think Facebook doesn't want that responsibility. Yeah, want it or not, that question of what responsibility Facebook has, not just to its users, but to the American people at large, has followed the company all the way to Capitol Hill, where it, along with Twitter and Google, has been called to testify. Lawmakers are going to ask about their secret proprietary tech tactics, like how they gather data to create extremely detailed profiles of you and me out of our digital footprints, our data trails, and then they let advertisers micro-target us. Stanford University's data scientist Michal Kaczynski explained more on a Note to Self episode back in March. We basically have shown that it is possible to take someone's digital footprints, such as Facebook likes or Facebook status updates, and turn those digital footprints into detailed psychological profile, including traits such as personality, intelligence, your job preferences, career preferences, but also intimate traits such as political views, sexual orientation, uh, religiosity, and so on. This field is called psychometrics, and Kaczynski is its pioneer. His work has been used by a company called Cambridge Analytica, partly owned by Trump supporter Robert Mercer and also part of the Trump campaign's data operation. We talked to Matt Utskowski from Cambridge Analytica back in March, too, and he told us that they didn't end up using psychometric tactics to target voters online in the presidential race last year. But Matt did say, though, that they were lining up clients for next year's midterms. I mean, listen, we're a behavioral and data science company. Whether it's behavioral science methodology or whether it's voter turnout models, we already have several clients lined up for 2018 races. So it's certainly been a busy time for Cambridge. But it's also, to some people, kind of scary if you don't understand it. And I totally get that. The scary, black, boxy nature of psychographics. It is tailoring messages that better appeal to individuals, to motivate individuals to take action. That's what marketing is, essentially, at the end of the day. And we've just found a better mousetrap to be able to do that. So ads are one thing. But what about messages that aren't paid for? Tech platforms have created a place for people to have online conversations that sway people's beliefs. And we've learned... We can't talk about changing perceptions of what's cool, acceptable, and normal without talking about Twitter. That is where armies of bots can spread garbage information and general confusion as they did during the campaign and as they continue to do so. Oxford University's Phil Howard was one of the first people to study these bots. He was here in May and told us how these bots worked during the final weeks before Election Day last year. What we found was that a very large proportion of the stuff, of the links people were sharing was junk. But the the other side of this is that the proportion of junk people were sharing was about equal to the proportion of professional news content that was being shared. So So you're saying for every one tweet about, you know, something true that was happening on the campaign trail, there was also a tweet that said complete and utter nonsense. Absolutely. 
Phil also tracked a lot of that fake news back to Russia and to news outlets like Russia Today or Sputnik. And he thinks that altogether, those messages did indeed sway voters. To the point where I think basically the outcome was a mistake. There was such significant amounts of misinformation that Michigan voters were exposed to. It's, I'm pretty sure they didn't make a high-quality decision, an informed choice. A mistake, you're, you're calling it. Yeah, it's a mistake in the sense of election interference. When there's so much misinformation that voters don't know what's true, they, they can't make good decisions. So, okay, each of these things alone, Twitter bots, hyper-specific ad targeting, they're super weird and kind of disturbing. But it's when you line them all up, that's when they assemble into an assault on our very systems of democracy and on how we Americans just talk to each other. I mean, does it start to sound kind of like a conspiracy theory? Well, yeah. And that is where the checks and balances built into our government kick in. The Justice Department special counsel investigation, led by the former head of the FBI, Robert Mueller, is building up steam right now. Congress members on both sides of the aisle doing their own investigations on Capitol Hill. And of course, the fourth branch, the press. A couple of the journalists helping us understand what exactly the Russian government and maybe the Trump campaign have been up to after the break. We're back. I'm Anoush Samarodi. It's Note to Self. And we're going for the big picture here to help us separate conspiracy from reality. And we've got two people immersed in this story, the Russian use of social media to manipulate the elections and the public. Noah Shackman is executive editor of The Daily Beast. Geopolitics is like a weirdly entrepreneurial sport, okay? And Spencer Ackerman covers national security there. I think people in our profession are rising to the seriousness of what we face here. And they both somehow manage to find some slivers of humor in what can be a very, very dark beat. In early September, we started digging into the traces still remaining on the Internet of imposter accounts across various social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube. There was this one Russian propaganda account called Williams and Calvin, which purported to be two Black Lives Matter activists from Atlanta. This is time for change. That is why I say that let our vote go for Trump, because this man is a businessman, he's not a politician. But were clearly Nigerian actors um, who were talking about how Trump couldn't be racist because he's a businessman and Hillary Clinton was an evil witch. Do we think that this wasn't just like bumbling Russian tactics, that actually this had an effect? Well, actually, I think Williams and Calvin, this is just my guess, were part of the B team, like part of the JV (laughs) propaganda team. But the varsity team was wicked. The varsity team included a group called Secured Borders, which purported to be a anti-immigrant, anti-refugee group. And 
they spouted all the rhetoric, anti-Muslim rhetoric, anti-immigrant rhetoric that the Trump campaign was known for and then took it up to an even higher level. And more than just spreading memes, they actually organized an anti-immigrant rally. Weirdly, they did it in this town in Idaho. Why this town in Idaho? Twin Falls? Twin Falls, that's right. right. Why they do it in Idaho? Because that place had become a far-right conspiracy monger epicenter because I'm, I'm serious about this next part, because Chobani yogurt was there. Oh, which is owned by an immigrant. Right. And the Alex Joneses of the world, the Infowarses of the world, were spreading lies that this place was like an epicenter of tuberculosis. And so this group, this fake group of Americans, actually got real Americans to show up and turn against other people on American soil. And that, for me, that was the moment where everything turned upside down. I thought back to how crazy the rhetoric was during the campaign. And I remember looking through my Twitter feed and being like, is this really representative of my country? Like, who are these people? And it turns out the answer may be not exactly. Maybe these people weren't representative of the country. Maybe they were employees of a foreign power. And to me, that was really when it all inverted. I would just add to that, that we're not talking about a hard and fast binary distinction between authentic Americans and inauthentic Russians purporting to be Americans. Because what the Russian propaganda does is play upon very real aspects of American right-wing political discourse. And you can see how these things feed into one another and play off one another. And I think what you're describing is like, here's me, you know, Joe Schmo on Facebook or on Twitter, and I see this and I'm like, wait, oh my God, there's so much hate in my country. How is this possible? But then you start to think, oh, this whole Russia story, wait, are they real? Are they not real? And the thing that you come up with is confusion. Yeah. So you're right. The goal is chaos. The goal is confusion. Why do we know that? Because Putin's own propaganda ministers have said openly that their goal is to undermine trust within Russia about the media in general and to not be able to tell what's real and what's fake. And it's very clear that they followed the same playbook here in America. Like the ultimate thing isn't to get someone to believe thing X or Y. It's to get them to believe in nothing so that they only trust the state. And we shouldn't let Americans ourselves off the hook here. Russian propaganda would be facile, laughable, and flimsy if it was just substituting a Russian message for something that already didn't exist in America. Right. They're playing off of exploiting wedges amongst and otherwise amplifying divisions that Americans ourselves created. And that's what makes it so fascinating to explore and necessary to trace, I think. I want to ask about the role that the big tech companies have played. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean— there was an argument made very early on by those tech companies that they are not going to be responsible for the content that was put on them. If I have an America Online bulletin board, right, and I'm just a bulletin board that you can We're stick a note on. We're not publishers. We're just platforms. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, people can publish whatever they want on our platforms. Okay, so we should not be responsible for that. And those are still basically the same arguments that Facebook and Twitter use today. Don't blame us. We're just platforms. Except those arguments are today bullshit. Here's why they're bullshit. Because 
Facebook very carefully curates what you see in your newsfeed. Twitter, which used to not curate now, very carefully curates what you see. In other words, they're preferencing certain content over others. Not only that, but companies and governments pay for Facebook to preference that content. So the argument that they're just simple platforms and they can't be responsible for what goes on is no longer operative. And so there's going to be a big push in Washington to make them culpable for what what's on their platforms. It's going to have profound effects on what we see and do online. And yeah, it's going to be a major battle. Even if it's editorial judgment by algorithm, it's still an editorial judgment. So in that vein, what are you looking at next, Spencer? Is it the, I mean, obviously, we're all waiting for the Mueller report to come out of the Justice Department, but what else are you looking for? As we look and cover the investigation, something else that's important not to lose track of is what U.S.-Russia relations are going forward. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, we reported the Daily Beast that Trump isn't actually implementing the new Russia sanctions that were passed. That's something that speaks to if what ultimately we're looking at is some form of arrangement, some quid pro quo between the Trump White House and the Kremlin quite directly to that perception. And it has real impact. It's not just on sanctions issues, but it's also about issues like Syria. It's not just what happened during the campaign. It's what the Trump campaign and the Kremlin does moving forward. I mean, this feels like we're just starting out here. And I'm seeing Carrie Matheson from Homeland, you know, (laughs) pulling back the curtain. It's all connected. Don't you see? It's all connected. Don't you feel like that every single day? I try not to, and here's why. And I think this speaks to this kind of test in journalism of the tensile strength of truth. Mm. It's only rigor that separates journalists and beyond journalists, intelligence analysts, readers, engaged citizens from conspiracy theory. We have to impose rigor and discipline on our own thought. We have to question what we've received and not just stop at questioning. When we ascertain what the answers are, we have to test the strength of those answers, their explanatory capability. This is you know, basically a test not only of each of our intellectual capability, but as a country of our maturity. I mean, I was a kid in the 70s and 80s, and it was, you know, it was the Cold War. The enemy was Russia. How do we not fall back into the old school, sort of the Red Dawn, the villainous Russians? I mean, it's We all go to our bunkers, and we... (laughs) (laughs) Well... A lot of tech people have started building those bunkers, actually. Yeah. I think it's an important question. Understanding the scope of a Russian intelligence activity, or even, to put it probably in less scary terms, a goal of Russian foreign policy does not by itself demand an equal and opposite American reaction. This is going to be the hill I die on. I won't accept that by reporting on the ways Russian propaganda got laundered on social media to target vulnerable American audiences, that that means that we ought to re-engage in a potentially cataclysmic war of Armageddon or even a series of extremely bloody and, and destructive proxy wars across the world. Just by exploring something does not itself carry along with it any predestined response. But I think that we can't shrink away from understanding and exploring the truth about the world in which we currently live. It's also been fascinating to watch 
longtime U.S. intelligence officials who have their own rather immaculate history of interfering in elections worldwide to the immiseration, sorrow, and deaths of countless millions, nevertheless reflect with a kind of respect, perhaps sometimes bordering on admiration Mm. for how sophisticated, how canny, and how easy the Russians were able, with relatively little financial investment, to have perhaps an outsized impact on American politics and do this at a time in which a lot of Americans had just figured that after the Cold War, the account with Russia was pretty much settled. Spencer Ackerman, Noah Shackman, Daily Beast, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you, Vinush. If you missed any of the episodes that we mentioned in the first half of the show, we will put links to all of them in our newsletter and on our website. It's notetoselfradio.org. And starting next week, we've got something special for you. It's a little November surprise. I'm Molly McHugh. I am a consultant and information warfare expert. I mean, it's like you're the cyber warfare version of Joan of Arc. We're going to unpack five words, five spy terms. It's information warfare and you. That's starting next week. So subscribe to the Note to Self podcast, sign up for our newsletter, and join us. NoteToSelfRadio.org or wherever you're listening to podcasts. Just tap subscribe. The Note to Self team is Jen Poyant, Kat Aaron, Megan Kunane, and Joe Plord. Many thanks to Hannes Brown, Matt Boynton, and Adriana Tapia for their help this week, too. Note to Self is a production of WNYC Studios. I'm Manoush Samarodi. Did you say immiseration? Yeah, that's a good word. I like that. I thought you were going to tell me as my editor that that's actually not a word. <laughs> I don't know. I like it. How do you and spell it? I-M-M. Damn it. Uh, I-S-E-R. And that's why Russia won. <laughs> <laughs>